Welcome to Backroom Talks. So the mistake is just trying to rush through that time and get them to an end that they're not ready for. Yeah, Quinn, that was a great conversation and it made me like want to get out on the gym floor and curse some weightlifting classes. Yeah, and actually, when you guys watched this, it got a little weird because it was just like he was, he was saying all of the things that we would say, right? And uh, my thing from the very beginning has always been this concept of opportunity cost. And what, what I mean by that is the time that you spend doing something is time that you've now chosen not to spend on something else. To listen to more Backroom Talk, be sure to subscribe. Learn to design personalized programs with the OPEX system of coaching by heading to opexfit.com. Quinn, man, it's uh, it's great to see you again. Um, I've been really excited about having you on and, and catching up. I haven't talked to you probably in three or four years since you were out at the gym with the, uh, the uh, clinical athlete weightlifting seminar. Um, so great to have you on, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a long time and, and uh, it's an honor being on the show, so thank you guys. Yeah, absolutely. And Quinn, do you mind just giving us a little bit of your background, uh, what you do, what clinical athlete is, because mm -hmm. you alluded to that too. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm a physical therapist. I'm a, my office is inside of a weightlifting gym. And when I say weightlifting, specifically the snatch and clean and jerk, uh, and, you know, training other types of athletes and, and, uh, active members of the general public, but my office is inside of a facility like that. And I'm in Southern California, Orange County, specifically, I've been out here for about five years. And uh, I've been out of physical therapy school for seven years now. And it's always been something some version of what I do now. So an office inside of a gym or working with with uh, the active population, I call anybody with physical activity goals athletes. So it could be athletes of all levels and, and ages and abilities. But that's that's what I do. And, and strength and conditioning was my was what I originally went to school for. So that's what I kind of those principles try to blend them into my physical therapy practice, where the the worlds of performance and and rehab get more gray, um, which is I think. The way I like it, and, and also what benefits the athlete in the in the long term, um, and that's that's pretty much it professionally. I I still compete in the sport of weightlifting myself. I've been doing that for ten years, and before that, I played uh, football at a small university in Indiana called Valparaiso University. So, always been active, and uh, I think it probably reflects in my in the way that I practice and treat. But that's kind of what what's led me up to this point. And now I'm sitting here with you. Quinn, but you can say you can say that you played Division One football, though, right? Valpo is—it's like a—it's somehow, some way. I have no fucking idea, but it's a Division One school. Division One Double A, so we'll qualify it. Division One Two A, but yes, D One, D One. We would have, you know, NFL scouts. We uh, at our practices, they weren't there for me. I would pretend that they were, um, and that we had, you know, every year we'd have two or three players go in the get drafted from our conference in the later rounds. So, you know, there was the competition was good. It wasn't the highest of levels, but it was enough to, to ring your bell. That's for sure. That's no, for sure. sure. Yeah. You played DB, right? Defensive back. Yeah. Yeah. Just a little gnat running around, chopping people's legs out. <laughs> Twitchy dude. Bodes well with weightlifting, man. Yeah. 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 So what was the transition from football into weightlifting, Quinn? 
It was actually easy, but there was a couple stops along the way. One of them was CrossFit. Uh, and actually, I got into CrossFit in 2007. And that was actually how I trained for football in the offseason for the last two years. And I was it got into great shape. I, didn't, I wasn't super strong, but I got into really good shape. And uh, I used, I, I loved it. I didn't love anything that lasted more than five minutes. Uh, but for, for training for football, it, it worked really well for the shorter stuff. And then after college, I was just looking for that thing to fill that void. And football is kind of a unique sport. You've got the, the physical aspect, but you, you can let your aggression out in certain ways. It's not necessarily one of those sports where the, the anger you get, the worse you do. You can, you can physically let it out, you know, and I was looking for something like that. CrossFit kind of did that for me because of the exertion. But I also want to be kind of good at stuff that I do. And man, anything, I mean, really anything over 15 minutes and I was just dead in the water. I went back, back in those days, we still had sectionals. Uh, CrossFit was still sectionals. The regionals were, the workouts were different for every region. Sometimes they were outside for some regions, regions sometimes they were inside. So it was a lot, you know, the, the games are still at the ranch. So that was my, my experience. And I did that a couple regionals and, and it was just um, weightlifting seemed to be calling the whole time because that's always what I was best at during football was, was the snatch and clean and jerk. And I did that in, in high school and college for, for football training. And it was always what I enjoyed the most. Um, a couple powerlifting meets in there. But again, the bench press was just my nemesis. It was like weightlifting was the perfect bridge. And, and it seemed to, to suit my skill sets and my wants. And once I started on that track, 10 years ago, competitively, uh, I haven't looked back. Where did, where did clinical athlete come into play, Quinn? I remember, gosh, man, I remember seeing that years ago, um, and I think it's before you and I connected, and just, it was an attractive idea, right? It's because like you were, you were in this PT, gray coach world where it's like, I'm a PT, but I'm also a coach and I'm also an athlete. So it seems like you're kind of wrapping your brain around, you know, those three ideas and wrapping them into this, this, uh, this brand, this company, Clinical Athlete. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, ultimately it was trying to find a community full of those types of individuals. So Clinical Athlete is five years old now uh, as of this September, but the idea, I had the idea in physical therapy school. I didn't know what that would actually look like. I just thought to myself, it would be cool to have a bunch of PTs who also were athletes themselves or also understood high level performance. And that was the extent of the idea. And after I graduated and got a couple years of practice under my belt, the idea started to come to fruition. Oh, maybe this could be like a, a directory where athletes could go and find somebody who they could trust, who's gonna understand their goals, be it a physical therapist, a, a medical doctor, any healthcare professional. And then that evolved into, well, it'd be cool also if those professionals could have like a forum to talk through things and to help to educate each other and, and it could be two facets. And so that's, an, that's what we did in 2015. We, we launched the clinical athlete directory and got a bunch of uh, clinicians to join right away. And then we, we launched the clinical athlete forum shortly after, and that's kind of our educational hub. So, you know, five years, we've got a lot of moving parts, but those two missions are kind of the same. We want to connect athletes with professionals who they can trust. And we want to educate those professionals in the realm of athlete health and performance. And those are kind of our two core missions. And uh, it's been fun. It's been a fun journey. 
Are there some like common issues with the education and model around traditional uh, PT that this was born out of? Yeah, but you know, o- over the past several years, I've become, I've dampened my uh, my railing of physical therapy school because the, the the issue if if you are going into physical therapy school with no prior background in strength and conditioning and you are hoping that physical therapy school is going to be that for you, you are sorely mistaken. And that is not to blame physical therapy school. That is not what it's designed for. They tell you on day one, we train you to be generalists. You will get as much exposure in a hospital-based, in acute rehab, in nursing home, as you will in orthopedic rehab. So it's kind of on you to do your own side learning, take some electives, maybe try to get your clinical rotations to be in the setting that you want. Uh, But ultimately, if you have no prior coaching experience, you're going to have to get that after school, or you're going to have to go on the weekends and shadow PTs and coaches, you know, on your own. So that is the issue. And it's not necessarily going to be changed we're starting to change it. We've got some people in the clinical athlete community who are now teaching electives in their PT programs about strength conditioning and exercise prescription, which is good. Um, but I, I would also say that the exercise prescription that is included in physical therapy school is not all that great. Um, it's, it's not all that progressive. Um, you get a, you'll get a couple slides on linear progression. You get a couple slides on maybe some type of like, undulating periodization and like over the course of three years you're not coming out with much when it comes to that stuff and the stigmas and the stereotypes of the classic physical therapy school exercises are like the mount rushmore of physical therapy a glute bridge a side plank a clamshell and you know whatever else whatever shoulder external rotation with a pink theraband it's not that far from the truth so that that is the issue and that's what we're trying to, and other, there's a lot of other communities and individuals who are trying to push for this as well. But just to give, if you're going to call yourself a sports PT, you need to understand that aspect. And if you're going to try to put athletes back onto the field, that takes a whole lot more than those little, you know, Rudy Poo exercises that I just listed off. Um, and that's where the the mind of the coach comes in handy. And sometimes at some point there are a lot of great coaches out there and if you're a physical therapist that doesn't have the tools you know collaborating with a great coach uh makes for a really really good team so that's kind of what we're about too is is bringing all these professionals into the fold but but yeah there's 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 issues and those are what we're that's what we're trying to address yeah, man, you took a you, you took a unique approach, man. I remember watching your videos. Gosh, it was probably five, six, seven years ago. It, I don't know where the hell you were, man. It looked like you were in a dark basement with some other guy. That's exactly where I was. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but no, you took a you took an interesting approach, and it kind of changed my uh, changed my perception a little bit on you know how to prepare for exercise um, relative to the to to the snatch and clean and jerk. And you took a uh, reductionist point of view where it's just like, hey. You know, someone's going to go in, they're going to do the snatch or they're going to do the clean and jerk. Like, don't spend 10 hours foam rolling and blowing in a balloon and doing all this shit. If the person doesn't need it, identify limitations and then, you know, deconstruct. And it's like, okay, do this. If that's the limitation, go back to the bar, do this. And you guys talk a, a lot about that. I don't know if you still do, but you talked a lot about that 
um, in your certification, and that was kind of an eye opener. And it kind of put like, you know, that's I was kind of thinking that way, but I think I was biasly thinking that way because I'm like, I don't want to spend fucking 30 minutes to warm up to put a barbell overhead. And then, you know, I'm sitting in your certification and you're like, don't spend 30 minutes warming up to put a barbell over your head if you don't need to. And that was a unique approach. And it, it came from someone that had, you know, experiences in the sport, experiences in other sports, and obviously your experiences as a PT. Uh, so was that, kind of, was that kind of your mission coming out of PT school? It's like, hey, I want to I be as real as possible and talk to athletes and coaches that are coaching athletes? Yeah, it, it, you know, it's all about what's going to give the best bang for buck because we only have my thing from the very beginning has always been this concept of opportunity cost and what what i mean by that is the time that you spend doing something is time that you've now chosen not to spend on something else and that goes with life in general it you, you decide to do something you've decided not to do other things so when it comes to movement and and prep and warm-up your example of laying on the foam roller for 30 minutes is now 30 minutes that you spent doing that, that you didn't spend doing the skill. Unless you're competing in the, in the sport of foam rolling, there is another skill that you're gonna have to now work on and you're gonna have to do that anyway. So what you need to ask yourself, be it a foam roller, you know, whatever it is, is this thing providing me something unique that if I didn't do it, I would miss the benefit. I would miss that benefit. And I wouldn't get that by doing the other thing. And my argument is no, many of these things, these modalities that we use are not giving us unique benefits that are specific to that thing. They are part of what, of a big bucket of things that can give you kind of the same thing, foam roll, like all of these non-specific passive modalities pretty much work by similar mechanisms. They change your perception. I mean, hell, foam rolling also encompasses you like actively rolling around. So is it the foam roller that's doing the thing or is it you just moving around for 30 minutes and kind of a progressive nature that you get up and you're like, oh, I feel loosey goosey now. I feel good. Um, but exercise can provide the same type of thing. It's just that we tend to freak out when we walk into the gym and you do that first air squat and it feels like garbage and you're like, oh God, I got to warm up for my warm up. And then you go off to the mat and you spend 30 minutes doing something non-specific when you could have just stayed there and kept doing the thing that you plan on training. Let's call it the snatch. You move real slow. You pick up the bar, you go real slow, uh, muscle snatch plus overhead squat plus a few snatch balances. Okay. It feels like garbage. Walk off to the side of the platform do a few goblet squats with a, uh, a 10 kilo plate, come back to the bar, do the same routine. Lo and behold, three or four rounds in, you start to feel that same feeling like things are clicking. You know, that feeling where we're like starting to get ready. Can't put your finger on it, but you're starting to turn on a little bit. The body, mind is getting there. Now you've spent the time getting to the same end by doing the skill that you're going to be training. So you've got that effect and you also got extra practice and you didn't have the 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 front end fuzz or fluff that you now you know would have to chop off and so my thing has always been opportunity cost 
if, if you try all that stuff and you come back to, you come full circle and you're like, you know what? I just really like this. I really like this set of warm up exercises. I really like this modality. Um, part of it is a ritual thing. Like I'm all for that. I just want people to be realistic about what certain things are providing them. And more importantly, what those things are not providing them. And I know that was a long winded answer to what you're getting at, but that's like the underlying principle of it all. And then we can talk about the, the very specific exercises or very specific modalities, but it's those principles I think that are really important. Gosh, it makes so much sense. And I think it's easy for us to agree with that sitting here now, but I can remember not all that long ago sitting in my CrossFit gym, uh, spending the 30 minutes on the foam roller doing banded X, Y, and Z, a uh, bunch of prep work with the end goal to get myself into positions that honestly I just shouldn't have been putting myself in. And that was me and other people around me as well. So I guess reflecting on that and uh, you know that pursuit of higher skill movements, especially Olympic weightlifting within CrossFit gyms where you have regular people going after it. Quinn, could you reflect a little bit on uh, just feelings around, uh, I guess the let's call it the negatives of uh, those weightlifting movements and CrossFit. Well, first of all, I was one of those people too. So in physical therapy school, when I was ending powerlifting and beginning my weightlifting career, the, the weight room was downstairs. There was a track upstairs. I would go upstairs to the track and 30 minutes was a short warm up for me. A lot of times I'd be up there for 45 minutes or an hour and I'm not exaggerating, literally foam rolling every soft to every from head to toe square inch of my body every, hooking up everyone every <laughs> square <laughs> inch kiva he just winked at me when he said that <laughs> I'll, I'll just stop there there was a there was a rail and i would hook a band up and and you know joint mobilize with the band i would do all that stuff and wouldn't you know it my motor skills didn't actually get better because you have to do the thing to get better at the thing so I got better at foam rolling. My tolerance to foam rolling got a lot better. Like it sucked less, but it did not transfer to my weightlifting. Um, what did transfer to my weightlifting was skill development and practice and not rushing through the exercises to try to get to the top weight that's on the paper for the day, but actually using my warmups as skill, like we do with every other life skill that you would want to learn, be it another language or math. We don't start at the end. We, we build a foundation and it's the same with these movements. Um, that I'd say, I don't know what the difference is. I don't know why we think there's a difference, but I do. I mean, it's a perception. It's a feeling it's physical. So when you get this quick fix, you feel like it did something because it worked right away. So you can imagine like, wow, imagine if I did this every day, I'm going to be an Olympian in like six months. But that's, that's not how it works physically. Usually the things that give you the most short-term gain are the things that give you the least long-term adaptation. And it's that paradox that we have to wrap our minds around. But as far as CrossFit, first of all, we wouldn't even be having this conversation if it wasn't for CrossFit. The brand, the sport, whatever you want to call it. I wouldn't have a job. I wouldn't have a physical therapy office inside of a weightlifting gym if it wasn't for CrossFit. So CrossFit has brought so much to the mainstream and it's, it's weightlifting that's the different gymnastics movements i mean really all of it so that's first and foremost so i'm very grateful to crossfit for that 
Now, I think, I don't think that CrossFit inherently does anything worse than people who just want to rush the process anyway. So like you go to a university gym and if they're going to do full snatches and cleans, they're going to have to sacrifice. Like that takes time to teach. And, it's, and especially in a CrossFit gym, when you're a coach and you're constrained like by an hour long class, wow, I have to teach this skill that people literally learn from the age of eight years old until they're 20 to be an Olympian. I have to try to teach this group of 20 people how to do it like now in the, in the first 15 minute block, right? Because then we have, we have the Metcon and we have the strength element and we might have some like uh, post wad skill work that we have to do and pat, jam that all into an hour. It's a lot. So you, it, the, the, that's not the mistake though. The mistake is just trying to rush through that time and get them to an end that they're not ready for. That's all. Cause you can get a lot of good work in 15 minutes or to, however long you have, you can do variations of the movements. You could, the entire snatch workout could be overhead squats and snatch balances. And then you could like in your rest period, you could work with a light training bar or PVC and work like muscle snatches or dip snatches or something like that. If these are all beginners, like, you know, if they have no experience. Um, but the, the point is find if you're a coach, you should understand the, the components of the movement so that you can break those down and work on specific elements and aspects of the movement. If you don't feel comfortable taking this whole group through the full movements, you've got plan A, plan B, plan C in your back pocket to be able to work with these athletes. And you've also got so many variables to manipulate as a coach. Like we think about weight on the bar as just this um, assumed thing that it should go up. But weight on the bar is just a variable that you have to manipulate both as a coach as an athlete. So you've got weight on the bar that you can manipulate. You've got the speed of the movement that you can manipulate. You could have everybody do tempos and or pauses at certain aspects of the movement to slow them down a little bit if they're getting crazy. Uh, and also it it doesn't allow them to lift super heavy if they're doing pauses or tempo. So that's self-limiting in and of itself. So you give them a variation that they literally can't go heavy in, but they still get to work hard and practice the skill. And then you've got all these variations that you can work on uh, that are within the snatch and clean and jerk that will make a dent over time. So again, I don't think, I don't think it's necessarily inherently wrong within the CrossFit model. I just think it's, it, it, it lends itself to the human nature of wanting to rush the process. Now, I will also say this, if you don't have the skill for the snatch and clean and jerk, and then you go and then do that thing in a Metcon, I do think that can pose some problems because here you are not skilled in a non-fatigued, non-stressed state. And then you want to go into a, a highly fatigued, highly stressed state under the clock and do that exact same skill that that doesn't make any sense. So a lot of conversations that I'll have with CrossFit coaches and CrossFit athletes is that we're going to pull until we've kind of tick the box in this skill element, we're going to pull that out of the Metcons because you can build your engine a lot of different ways. You don't need to do a 30 minute chipper with all these skill elements when you like are comfortable with two of them. We're going to pull those out of the Metcons and we're going to work on that skill. And that's where EMOMs, 
and, and different types of, of ways to program cluster work on short rest can really be helpful because it still feels like you're kind of in the metabolic demands of something, but you, you're, you're not fatigued to the point where it's a decrement to the skill itself. So you can be creative with how you program these things. Um, but that's maybe the one caveat that I would say that CrossFit lends itself into is, is doing these highly skilled tasks when they don't yet have the skill in these really fatigued uh, stress states. Like we want to get there because that's the sport, but we, we have to build that foundation first. Yeah, I mean, man, you're, you're speaking our language, right? Like that's, that's exactly what we teach our coaches, right? It's like whatever this skill is, this thing, and that can be a, a freaking air squat all the way to a, a snatch, right? It's like you have this skill, get very proficient at this skill on its own, just by itself in the corner, right? And then this is for someone that wants to add it in a more metabolic scenario or situation, right? It's like get really good at this skill by itself, then add something else with this skill. So it might be an air squat and a push-up that complements that movement pattern-wise, and then add something that doesn't complement it. So like an air squat and maybe it's a wall ball or a clean, right? And then do that thing in an aerobic setting at a very sustainable effort. And then all bets are off, right? It's like now throw this thing into chaos and now you should be able to perform this thing effectively if that's what the, what the outcome that you're looking for is. But see, a lot of people take all that middle stuff out <laughs> and they go straight to the chaos yeah. and, then, and then chaos ensues. But no, that's exactly right. Like as you're describing that, what's okay what's an underlying principle because you just described like you gave a very specific example but within that principle of what you described there you could probably have taken those have replaced those exercises with a different exercise and it would have been the same principle so like there's a lot of the point is there's a lot of ways to skin this and the the what it sounded like to me that you were saying is incrementally you know manipulate one two variables at a time add in one or two elements at a time that are gonna test or kind of perturb your stable state and when i say stable in this context it doesn't mean like what we think like joint stability or something like that what it means is the system-wise stability so let's take it from the ground up. You've learned how to snatch. You're semi-comfortable on the snatch. Like you're new, it's been three or four months. You kind of got it. It's like shooting a free throw. But what happens when you change one variable, that stable state gets disrupted. That could be a new coach is coaching you today. When the last three or four months, it's been this coach that you really like and you guys have a great relationship. And now it's this new person because your other coach is on vacation. You don't like their cues and it's just a really weird day. And then you forgot how to snatch or you can't uh, lift on your favorite platform because there's a class going on where you always lift on that platform. And now it's all weird because you're staring at the wall and you're not used to that. Like when you're new like that, those little things can mess with you. Now, as you get more stable, this is, this is kind of like dynamical systems talk here, but as your, as your pattern gets more stable, you can add more complexity, which is exactly what you described. You're trying to perturb the system because that's how you adapt. You have to find that threshold that pushes you to the brink of breakdown, but it's not too hard because you don't learn if it's too hard and it's not too easy because you don't learn there either. Like in, if you're trying to learn math, you don't just get dropped into a, a calculus class and you also don't get dropped into kindergarten. You've got to find that threshold 
at which you, you are pushed to the brink, but you're still in, in control. And that's kind of what you're describing. Throwing in these different movements that are gonna complement, not completely disrupt your skill, the skill element of the snatch, but it's, it's gonna give you, it's gonna push you to a fatigue threshold that you're not quite used to having to perform that skill element. And then you layer on and you layer on and you layer on. And like, before you know it, what you said, you're prepared for this chaotic environment. But that is a process. How are you communicating that process? Like you, you alluded to it, people want to skip all the middle stuff and go straight to the chaos. So what is some advice you have for coaches who are trying to get their clients to slow down? Honestly, I mean, what are la the last five minutes that we just talked about, like I will have, especially with coaches, I give athletes a little bit of a pass unless they want to geek out on this stuff it's more so common sense. So the, the exact conversation that we just had, I'll just take out all the fancy terms and talk and give them context. So like, I'll ask them, what do you do? Like, what's a hobby or what's something that you like to do or what's your job? Cause maybe their job is some craft or skill, you know, that maybe they're an engineer or something or, or a carpenter would be a great example, but it's like, how did you get good at that thing? And, and, did, and I'll give an extreme example. Did you, they just drop you in and they say, all right, build that thing. Like you're, you're, con, you know, construction worker, go build that house. Now you have no idea. You've never even held a hammer. There's no, you started where you were and you built on skill over time. And that's exactly how the training process has to be. You can go in there and, and bust your balls on every single workout and you might be fine. But if you run into problems, don't be surprised because we didn't tick off these boxes. You, you weren't preparing yourself for that. What we can get prepared for, and this is how we do it. And we walk through some of these steps. So we basically just kind of like start at the end and then lay out how we get there. And that's with the athlete. It, it, I mean, the conversation is no different with the coach. Now I just feel a little bit more free to, to talk about so, kind of the principles underlying it because they need to know that stuff. Um, but I don't think it's how you say it necessarily because this is the conversation, but it's saying it over and over and over, or at least being prepared as a coach to say it over and over and over because the athlete's going to say, Oh, okay. That makes total sense. Of total sense. Literally the next week, they're going to do something that, or they're going to say something in which totally goes against what you guys have talked about. And we like, we talked about this, right. And either they'll say, I know, I know, or they'll have just forgotten. I mean, we, you have to say the same thing over and over, like it's the first time you said it. And so I don't think there's any special way to go about it. I think it's bringing context to their life, having, uh, you know, bringing them back to something that they understand and they know because the principles are probably this very similar and then being ready to just constantly reiterate that point over and over and show examples and explain the whys behind it. Um, you know, it goes back to the old adage of if you can't explain why you're doing something, then, then why are you doing it? And I agree with that to a, to a point, I think, um, you just be ready. Like if you can't explain it, don't be surprised then if the athlete doesn't get it. It's like, you can't be mad at the athlete. If, if you don't, if you can't put your finger on exactly why that thing is in there. Um, so I think to answer the question, like the conversations are, they, they can, you can bring it back down to earth to where it makes sense. It's just going to be about the day to day 
grind of, of implementing. And I think you just have to stay on it and you have to be uh, kind of preemptive. Like I have a lot of uh, online correspondence with my athletes right now, just with the stuff that's going on. And, and so I'm writing a lot of like message feedback as opposed to me being on the floor with them. And so my message feedback will be like, they might be nailing it and everything is going well. And I'll just decide to inject and just remember where we're headed right now. We're here, we're doing this thing right now so we can build to X, Y, Z. But right now we've really got to hone in. Like they didn't even ask me, it wasn't prompted, but it was just one more exposure to the idea of why we do what we do. So I just think it's that. I think it's a lot of touch points. I think it's a lot of giving them little nuggets and exposing them to the principles over and over and over. And uh, you get to the point where they start calling their own shots, which is cool. Like, you know, they do their workout and they say, ah, I think I overshot it today. Um, no big deal. You know, I'll just pull it back next week and, and go from there. And you're like, yes, you know, like I'm, I'm just a tour guide now. And we're, it's almost like this collaborative experience that when, you, when, you're, when you're a coach with an experienced athlete who's coachable, it's this team now instead of this dictatorship where coach says an athlete does you want to get to the point where you guys are working together um but that takes time and that takes a lot of trust but it, it, it's cool when you get there but that's kind of what you're striving for yeah i think it's i think I, I think it always makes it a little easier when you can teach through experiences right so it's like you know a couple examples it's like let's take uh let's take a weightlifter right and it's like quinn's like okay you know, I'm writing this thing into your program. I want you to do, you know, 72% of your snatch every 45 seconds for 10 sets. And this athlete gets four sets in. And they're like, that's impossible. Like, I just can't do that. And now Quinn has an opportunity to say, hey, man, like, you know, now you have to raise your minimums because you're not capable. And it may be a mechanical thing. It may be something else. It may be um, something metabolic. I don't know, but you can't repeat this movement over and over and over against the 45 second clock at a percentage where you should be able to do that right and it's a great opportunity to have that conversation it's like now that's why we have to take a step back and work on these things mechanically um, or you take a an easier example like a, a crossfitter right or someone that's in functional fitness and they're doing like and we've all seen it right it's like i'm going to do this like power snatch and you know kipping pull-up workout and it's like, I get three and a half minutes in this thing. And for some reason, I can't extend my humerus. For some reason, like my, my pullers are gone and I can't get my chin over the bar. And it's like, yeah, you probably need to work on those things by themselves before you put fucking chaos into this thing and try to go against the 10 minute clock and do as many rounds as possible. And they're like, okay, but why? And then like Quinn was saying, it's like, well, these are the reasons why, right? It's like, you aren't efficient enough mechanically to do this thing. 60 kilos in a power snatch for 15 reps by itself. What makes you think you can do 30 reps with pull-ups, right? So I think, you know, when we start to break it down through experiences, it just makes our jobs as coaches a lot easier because now we have something to, to compare it to, right? And to like take a step back and it's like, this is where we should be to get there. It's about preparation. So there's a few points there and I, I loved everything that you said. So in that example, power clean, kipping pull-up couplet, they'll, what they'll say is, well, I can do kipping pull, like I can cycle through like sets of 10 kipping pull-ups and I can do like, I can crush 60 kilo power cleans. Like, I don't understand why I can't do this. 
because they're, they're compartmentalizing those two components. They're not taking into account the metabolic demands that, that weigh in, that moderate. So with CrossFit especially, fatigue is a, is a powerful moderator. And what a moderator means is it affects the interaction of A and B. So A and B by themselves or A and B either, either completely by themselves, so like just doing kipping pull-ups in an EMOM or something, or just doing power cleans as a skill element. I nail that. I can even nail it if it's an am, if it's an EMOM couplet where I have like 30 seconds rest every minute. But there's a there's a critical a critical threshold at which fatigue now has a powerful moderating effect on these. And all of a sudden you hit that wall, like what you just described. All of a sudden I can't like straighten my arms. I literally can't bend my elbows to do a pull-up. Like I've felt that we've probably all felt that and we, our brains don't go to, Oh, okay. So this is a completely different demand. This isn't power cleans by themselves. This isn't kipping pull-ups by themselves. Like this is a different animal. It's a different skill in and of itself. Like metabolic demands we think is physiology, but like it's a, it's also a skill to, to be honed. So it's about preparation. So, I think in that scenario and in the snatch scenario with the weightlifter, number one, it's an opportunity for us. It's an, it's an educational opportunity for the athlete. It's just going to be, it's just let them be frustrated. It's just going to be a shitty day, but you can make that a teaching moment. You can say, okay, what does this mean? What does this mean that we're not prepared for, for, for the weightlifter who can't do 72% for, you know, every 45 seconds for sets of 10, they're probably out of shape. You know, if the first few reps look good and then it was just shit from there, their, their probably work capacity is probably just garbage. Now, what is, is that meaningful for a weightlifter? Work capacity is meaningful for a weightlifter if you've ever done a weightlifting meet. Over a two hour span, you have to maximize your snatch and clean and jerk abilities on the same day. Like that takes a little bit of oomph. It takes more out of you than you think, six lifts. Um, and they need that. So if you're in a, an accumulation block, like that's the whole point is to gain work capacity to be able to train for uh, a strength or peak block. So that's, that's a teaching point. So what don't we have? What aren't we prepared for that this workout highlighted? So it's like, no, you, you shift from, oh, I had a shitty workout to, oh, wow, this workout highlighted one of my, a weakness, a gap that I have right now. It's like, cool. The other piece of it is what I've evolved into over time as a coach is, is trying to get the athlete better at the skill of training itself. So training itself being a skill and having to make little training decisions every day that move the needle forward. So for example, let's say I'm not in the gym during the, during the workout where the athletes doing their snatches and they're missing 70, I have very specific 72% for every 45 seconds. And they are like one of those athletes that has to stick to what's written. Had I written 74%, it would be 74%, right? It's one of those that if they're too rigid in that sense, they're setting themselves up for failure because you're going to come into the gym at varying ready states. Some days you're going to walk in feeling great. Some days you're going to walk in not feeling great. And if you're so rigid married to what's on the paper, you are, you are a prisoner to your own readiness. But if you have a, a plan a and a plan B, how do I modify this workout? If it's not going well, well on the snatch workout, what are our variables that we can manipulate? We could go lighter 
And I know like, that's so easy. Like we don't even say it. It sounds so stupid, but nobody does it. And they, it's such an easy thing, like low hanging fruit, just go a little lighter today. Like we want to get better at the snatch. You're not competing in the 72% snatch category. Anyway, we're doing this for reps. So if you have to go down to 68%, which is also why I don't prescribe set percentages like that for this exact reason, I either give ranges or we leave them, I leave the sets open and it's based on their prior week's performance. And if they feel good, move the needle a little bit. If you don't like, that's maybe a different conversation, but go a little bit lighter or increase the rest. So maybe instead of 45 second rest, I'll go ahead and give you a minute and a half and you can stay at 72%. So whatever we have to do, whatever, don't just quit. Don't just have like a tantrum and leave the gym or don't, or cut your snatches off halfway through. Manipulate a variable. Maybe you have to manipulate two. God forbid you rest a little bit longer and you go lighter. Like I'm not going to be mad, but it's, it's getting the athlete to start being able to make those decisions so that you don't, you know, check their log a day later. And they're like, Oh wow. You didn't even do the workout. No, it was just really shitty. And I was missing. And so I just, I just cut it off. It's like, Oh my God. Like, because those days add up, right? Like every time you have one of those days, that's, that's an opportunity cost. That's a time that you chose not to have a good day. And like, there was, there was ways to do it. So your example brought up two points that these bad days can number one, be education moments. And number two, as a coach also to teach you how to give your athlete some uh, modifiable factors that they can have in their back pocket if they need them. Quinn, could you talk a little bit to what you just alluded to around percentages and why you yeah. don't give a set percentage? Yes, and I'll, uh, not always. So percentage-based training is a great place to start. And it's, and it's I mean, it's strength conditioning one-on-one. Find your one rep max or find an estimated one rep max, take a percentage of it, go to town. And that's a great place to start. The issue is that percentages, straight percentages are not auto-regulatory. So a lot of times, what are you basing your percentage off of? Think of like, this is rhetorical, but a lot of times you're basing that percentage off of a one rep max. Many times that one rep max happened weeks ago or even months ago, or even days ago. You are not on the, on a day-to-day -day basis. Your readiness fluctuates significantly. It could go, I've seen, I've seen data as upwards of 18% better than average as little as, or as, as less than 18% lower than average. So if your average readiness, and we could measure readiness by saying you move hundred kilo back squat at a certain speed on average, you could walk into the gym with potentially a 36% swing total in either direction either feeling like you could run through a brick wall and, and PR for days or feeling like absolute dog shit. And we know this, but percentages don't account for that. Percentages are just 72% of that number that you hit whenever you hit it. I don't care if you're 18% in the hole today because that's going to be a really hard day. That's not what coach planned for. Like that day that was supposed to be moderately hard is now maximally hard because that percentage is not taken into account your readiness. On the flip side, you come to the gym feeling fantastic. 
you wanted them to have like a pretty good day, but now that day is too easy because they could have gone heavier because they're in that ready state. Two different athletes have different readiness states and they also have different attributes. So let's say you have athlete A who can do 20 repetitions with 80% of their one rep max. Athlete B can do 10 repetitions with 80% of their one rep max. Both athletes get the same program. Today's workout is three sets of eight at 80% of your one rep max. Well, athlete A can do 20 reps. So like sets of eight, that's going to be super easy for them. That's going to be like, all right, I'm ready for the actual workout. Athlete B who can only do eight reps on a good day now, or 10 reps on a good day, and now has to do three sets of eight with that same weight is going to get crushed from that workout. And that's assuming they're coming in like feeling good. So that's why straight percentages, that's the limitations. It's not that you can't use them. People have gotten very, very strong over the years with straight percentages, but you have to be keen on how they're looking at that weight and you have to be ready to adjust. You can't just rely on those percentages to do that for you because they don't. That's where RPE comes in. That's where um, velocity-based training comes in because velocity has a linear relationship with readiness and load on the bar. So it, it, that is the autoregulatory uh, element it is tracking the bar velocity. RPE is validated off of velocity, but RPE is cheap and you can use it anywhere. So it's like a nice proxy. Um, and just subjective feel when it comes to the snatch and clean and jerk, RPE is not validated for those things. You don't miss a snatch because of muscular failure. You miss a snatch because of lots of different factors, bar trajectory, technique, apprehension. Maybe you're scared to get under the bar. Like that has nothing to do with your perceived exertion. Um, speed, bar speed is a determinant of a snatch and clean and jerk, but it's not as direct as say for a squat or an overhead press or a bench press or a deadlift. So with snatch and clean jerks, it's a lot more by feel, both for the athlete and it's a lot of the optics from the coach. And the science, the, the scientist in me cringes at that, but I mean, that's not replaced. Like these, these auto regulatory strategies don't replace the coach. So if the athlete looks snappy, and they, and they look sharp and they're coming out of the hole, they're coming out right out of the catch and standing right up and not having to take a step back or a step forward. The bar looks like it's moving fast. They, you know, they drop the bar, look at you like that, that felt good. That's kind of, that's your auto-regulation for the day. Now, if you're not there, that athlete has to learn that. So in the beginning, when I don't know an athlete, I'm much more closed with my prescriptions. And what that means is it's much more of a dictatorship. Don't lift heavier than this weight, do this percentage, or do uh, this is your range. You can go as light as this, you can go as heavy as this, but don't go over this. So it's because I don't know them. And I want to see how they respond to training and what their skill set is like. Um, I have a little bit of their history, so I at least know that because I dig into that for that very reason. Like, where do we start? Well, what were you doing before you came to me? So that gives me a little bit of a prior. Um, but as I gain more trust, as they start to hone their skill of training, I start to open up those prescriptions a little bit more when it comes to the snatch and clean jerk. And those sets are more, they're more open. It's, you know what you hit last week. You know what a good rep feels like. I'm watching your videos. So chip up if you feel good and pull it back and work on 
the, the, you know, whatever it is for that athlete that we always work on finishing your pull, staying over the bar, not jumping three feet backwards. Like we all have those things. So if it's not a great day, weight wise, you give them that thing to work on technique wise. When it comes to squats, things like squats and the strength movements, I, I use RPE. I use, I use velocity based training for, for several athletes, but if they don't want to invest in that, I use RPEs. Um, I use percentages in regards to drop sets or percentages based on prior days. So on Monday, let's say we worked up to a set of three in the back squat at RPE eight, maybe on Friday, my prescription is 90% of Monday's load for sets of five. We're still removed from that day. So there's still some uncertainty there, but we're not months and weeks removed the way that we typically are. So like, it's a little bit more accurate. That 90% is probably more like what you were on that day than what you were three months ago. So that's where I'll, I'll, you'll see me use percentages a lot more is based on weights that they've hit recently. Yeah, we, we talk about it a lot, but it, what you're saying essentially is what we always say, where it's like, you have to, you have to get to a place where you can build autonomy as a coach for your client, right? And like we use the example sometimes, like what happens when your client goes to the gym at five o'clock in the morning, Eastern time, and you're in California and they walk into their gym and a piece of equipment is not available. Do they pack it up and go home or do they understand this is what my coach would tell me to do, to do or I should probably do this because I'm not going to text my coach because it's 2 a.m. in the morning. I mean, I don't know how you get down, Quinn. You might be still awake then, but um, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's, we're saying the same thing. It's like build a level of autonomy. And I like what you said where it's like, when you start the relationship, it's closed, right? It's like, there's these walls up because this client has no autonomy. And if they do, you don't know if they do quite yet, right? But it's like, you're working to open those walls a little bit and to, to teach them how to exercise. So I think that's a, that's a really good point, man. Thanks for that. Yeah, it's so important. It's everything. And just to qualify the term auto-regulation, if, if people aren't super familiar, that's really, you're just trying to individualize the stimulus as often as you can. So in those percentage examples that I gave, the stimulus wasn't individualized to either that person's just kind of inherent nature or their, or their daily readiness state. But if we can, if we can incorporate strategies to auto-regulate or to individualize the training stimulus as often as we can, then we'll, we're, we're course correcting. So the person's not veering off track too far at any point in time. Um, and again, if you're percentage-based coach, like there's nothing wrong with that. Just, I'm pre we're probably preaching to the choir, just be okay with having to adjust those percentages every now and then to meet their, their current state. And also like communicate that to them because most more coaches I think are okay with changing up their numbers than the athlete is. Once they see that number, man, they are like, holy shit. Like they see it as a failure. If I wasn't able to hit 74% today, that is a failed day. And that, that mindset, that's, that's what slowly degrades an athlete because you're basically like, we only have so many good days. You know, if you saw a chart, if you had to rank days, good, average, bad, it would probably be like good, good, average, 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 bad, average, average, bad, average, average, good, average, average, bad, bad, bad. <laughs> so like you have to, you have to 
make sure that your stimulus is always nudging up against where they are for the day, because that's what, like we say, a high tide raises all boats. If we, if we are too myopic and we look at the day-to-day fluctuations, we just like make ourselves crazy. So we have to have these strategies to get as much as you can on that day. And then when you zoom way out, you see that trend line is, oh yeah, we're, we're definitely trending up in the right direction. It's just when you zoom in on any one part, it's, it looks crazy. It looks random, you know, whether you have a good day or a bad day, but um, this is something to, as an athlete, again, just with the experience of training, uh, you, you tend to learn. So outside of athletes who are training the snatch and the clean and jerk for the sport, where do you see Olympic weightlifting fitting into your general population, wants to look good, feel good, uh, health-focused client? That's a really good question. In that example, wants to look good, feel good, health-focused, I don't know if it plays much of a role at all. If, if we're looking at, again, what is what are the weightlifting and derivatives and the movements providing somebody in that respect they're not building hypertrophy like you're not getting your your clean and jerk muscles bigger necessarily like you're they can make you jack like weightlifters look jacked but they squat heavy they pull heavy they do accessories and like they've been training for years so it's not and and you're building this explosive power but does that matter to the person so to me, for that example, like that avatar of a human, we're doing snatch and clean jerks if they think it's fun and they like it. And they're like, you know what? I'd like to try that thing that I see all those people doing over there. And like, we'll mess around with it. So in that respect, I don't know if it's providing a whole lot other than just novelty and fun, which is important. Now, if you're like, maybe you're a level above that and you're, where you say you're a weekend war, like you're doing sports, you're playing soccer, you're playing basketball, um, volleyball, maybe like I want to jump higher. Like I'm, you know, a 35 year old, 40 year old, but I, I want to be still kind of springy explosive. Well, number one, we have to make sure that your strength bucket is all the way filled because just being strong, just the ability to produce force will make you more explosive. You'll be faster. You will jump higher. Your rate of force development will be higher just even just grinding through strength lifts. But there comes a point where squeezing more juice out of that lemon may not give you as much of that balance as throwing in some weightlifting stuff because weightlifting is kind of the middle ground. It's still kind of heavy, but it's not weightless, uh, but it's not so heavy that you can't move fast. So it's that sweet spot of, of literal power. Power is force times velocity. When you're grinding through a max effort squat, your power is actually really low because velocity is low, but your force is through the roof. When you're throwing a baseball, your velocity is super high, but your force is really low because the ball is so light. You have nothing to counteract your force. So power is this middle ground of high force and high velocity, and that's where weightlifting comes in. So for field sport athletes, it's highly effective at that because that's kind of where they live they're they're living in that high force high velocity zone a lot of times for their sport and uh weightlifting derivatives will give them a lot of bang for their buck in that regard for the weekend warrior athlete it's still probably mostly a novelty and fun element of it um but it'll probably give them a little bit more bang for their buck 
than somebody who's just in this to look good, feel good, and just wants to be healthy and, and kind of enjoy their life outside of the gym. So it's a spectrum. I'll stop there and, and get your guys' thoughts on that. And we can move forward. Yeah, I just have a, I have a follow-up question. So you mentioned the strength bucket. What do you use to understand if, let's say it is, you know, the avatar that Georgia just laid out, but it was someone that wanted to do the snatch and clean and jerk because it's fun, or, you know, the weekend warrior that you mentioned. What do you, what do you use to determine if they're strong enough and or if they're capable of doing those lifts? Which lifts? Snatch, clean, and jerk? Snatch, clean, and jerk. Okay. So strong, so, well, they could grab a PVC pipe. So they don't have to be strong enough. So when I said strong enough, it wasn't strong enough to do the snatch and clean and jerk. It was strong enough to now need to do the snatch and clean and jerk in order to improve ballistic qualities like jumping and power and explosiveness. Because just getting stronger will give you those qualities for most people. And in the, in the literature that I've seen, it's like two times body weight back squat. Once you like, anything under a two times body weight back squat and you can get pretty much most of your athletic qualities that you want by just grinding through more back squats and like moving as fast as you can it still might be slow because it's heavy but once you're at a certain strength level squeezing more juice out of that lemon to jump higher and run faster might not give you as much bang for buck so that's where adding in more of the weightlifting derivatives more jumps like lightly loaded jumps so we're surfing the force velocity curve more so when people are at a certain strength level but if you're trying to ask the question of how strong do i need to be to just do the snatch and clean jerk well my response would be how strong do you need to be to go over there and grab the pvc pipe or grab the seven kilo training bar to do a snatch and clean jerk so you don't have to be strong at all to do to work on the skill of those movements if it's your decision as a coach to say I want to push this person's ability in the snatch and clean and jerk. Pushing their strength in their pulls and their squats are going to be more of a performance question than a safety question. So if they're getting, if they're barely standing up from their cleans at like 60 kilos, you could probably say, you know what, let's work on your front squat. Let's get really strong in your front squat and let's keep our clean work at like 50 kilos and below just so you can work on the skill so that you can practice the positions that we want to transfer. Because right now your front squat max is like 80 kilos and it, you're just getting buried. So you make, I mean, I'm making up a number, but if they got to their front squat to hundred kilos, they probably wouldn't be getting buried by that 60 kilo front squat. So I don't have, like, if you want exact numbers, the rut, like all this data comes out of the Russian uh, literature and some of these world championships back in the eighties, where if you can, you should be able to front squat your best clean for a triple. Um, those numbers are out there. I, I don't adhere to them. Number one, cause they're based on elites and they're also based on drugged athletes. If we're being completely honest, like any of the weightlifting data that came, came out of that time period, um, it's good for like a starting point, but I, I want to make sure I was getting at your question. Yeah. Yeah. L let me get more specific. Um, and it may not even change your answer, but when, when, when's the line crossed from, okay, I'm training this thing as a skill versus now I'm training this thing, uh, as a, as a, as a real strength speed movement. Like when does that happen in your head? When it's actually happening, 
So what I mean by that is if they're slow with their snatch and clean and jerk, they're training to be, they're not yet training power, like they're training slow. So like it is, you could hook a velocity, like if we were only want to answer this question, we would hook a velocity tracker to their barbell and, and say at this weight that you move, that you now move at this speed, you've increased this speed above a certain threshold, we can calculate power. I mean, we would just calculate their power. We could, we calculate force and velocity because we can do that if we, if we have velocity and their body weight and we can just look at those trends and then we could look at normative values if we wanted to get really nerdy and say somebody in your, in your cat, in your age category and weightlifting is, is putting up this much power. Um, then we can kind of compare that, but otherwise if it's in the gym, it's more of an eyeball test. And this is why I don't know if the weightlifting derivatives for anybody who's not either a weightlifter or a serious strength and conditioning collegiate athlete or high school athlete is actually getting that quality out of the lifts because their skill is not yet established to even to, to squeeze that out. So, and even for weightlifters, like they don't actually pull the bar as absolutely hard as they can, because that kind of messes with your trajectory a little bit. So there's like, they put the brakes on just a little bit. In, in the collegiate setting, they often don't do the full lifts. They just do pulls because having to catch, you automatically put the brakes on. You have to decelerate the bar. So you don't actually pull with all of your might. You, you pull back a little bit subconsciously. So a lot of times in the collegiate setting, they'll just do pulls because they're trying to maximize triple extension. Um, so for these athletes, I don't actually know if you're getting a whole lot of that until you uh, until you have that that box checked off that like oh their technique looks good and <laughs> they are lifting gosh 80 your power cleaning 85% of their front squat and their front squat is uh at minimum 1.5 times body weight uh, you know I'm making some numbers up here but if two times body weight is kind of the threshold for back squats um, a, a front or a, yeah, a front squat's going to be lighter. And so you can start to look at some of these thresholds and, and base your decisions off of that. Otherwise I think getting strong and then just doing jumps will give you that ability because jumps don't require skill. You can just go to town. You can put a bar on your back or you could hold kettlebells or dumbbells, or you could wear a vest and you could either jump up to a box you could do bounds over hurdles, um, squat jumps, you know, with a bar on your back, anything like that. And now you don't have to worry about putting the brakes on with, with a weightlifting derivative. Quinn, you just, uh, you just gave advice that is going to lead to some gym fail videos. So uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe go a really low percentage of that barbell on your back before. I could just see someone like- We don't jump on boxes. We Quinn told me to- on the, We put a bar on our back. Jump on off the ground, back onto the ground, not on the not on the boxes. <laughs> Quinn's like one times your body weight to a twenty-three and a half inch box. Oh yeah, yeah, no, no, no. If I said that, <laughs> I grab grab an empty bar, 
<laughs> like, like, like polarizing. So my point, this is good. That's actually a good point. Cause I didn't, I wasn't clear. Polarize the training. So heavy, grindy, light and ballistic. The middle is going to give you a lot of both, but the middle is what requires some training experience because yeah, you put, you put uh, 80% of your body weight on your back or hundred percent of your body weight on your back to try to jump as high as you can. Well, guess what? You got to land. And that's where all the force comes in. So, so in the beginning, if you're a coach and you want them to get some explosiveness and some ballistic, just train the jumps. There's, there's progressions of jumps. You can start with pogos. You could start with them just sitting on a box jumping to a, high, a, a box that's in front of them. So now you don't have the stretch shortening cycle and you're, it's a little easier on the joints. And when you jump onto a box, you dampen the landing forces because you're not landing from as high of a height. And you can pull that second box away and you can just do a squat off of a box, jump straight up and down. Now you got to land, teach them how to land by stepping off of a box and just sticking their landing. And that turns into depth jump. So there's, there's progressions here, but my point was polarize the training a little bit. If you want to get that explosiveness, use the weightlifting in the middle as skill development. If you do it long enough, you will get these power development elements, but I don't have, I don't have that specific number. We would, I mean, literally those are studies that we would have to do is like, at what point are you actually maximizing power for this person. It's usually around 40% for collegiate athletes. It's around 40%, 40 to 60% of their one rep max is where power is absolutely maximized force times velocity. But those are athletes who are trained and they have a certain degree of, of proficiency in the movements. And these are usually just power cleans. So it doesn't really require that much, but they've usually been doing them for a year or two to squeeze that out. Um, so I, I guess, yeah, I guess my answer was I, I wouldn't worry about like do the movements as the skill gets better, they will get more of that quality. Yeah. I love your, I love your advice on the polarized training. And it's like that, that, that's a great principle for everything, right? It's like strength training. It's a great principle metabolic training. It's a great principle because when we start to get into that middle zone, that's where trouble starts to occur. Right. It's like, that's where, you know, we have to look at, ooh, am I doing too much volume and too much intensity? Like what, what's, what's happening? And we see that a lot in, in metabolics as well. So that's, that's a great point. Thanks for bringing that up. It's just, well, it's like you said before, uh, it's about preparation. The middle ground, it sounds like the middle ground would actually be safer, but it adds a lot of noise. Cause like you said, it's like, why, why exactly is this giving me problems? Cause it, by itself, it's not too heavy. And the volume, if we, if we take the weight out of the equation, just the volume itself is not all that bad. So like, what's the moderator? It's the interacting, it's the interaction of those components. And that a lot of times is sport though. Like it's not going to be maximally grindy unless you're a power lifter, these very specialized sub skills. And it's also not going to be like just crazy only crazy crazy volume crossfit may be more on that realm but you're still going to need the grindy um but it's that takes 
preparation on both ends. And then it's like you said, then you can start to bring the chaos. But a lot of times people crush themselves in this middle ground volume, like really high volume, just enough weight to be heavy enough to, to beat them down a little bit, but not heavy enough to actually make them like top end stronger. And just enough to make them like just a slow grindy athlete and like beat them down into the dust, like over time. And they wonder, well, it's not heavy and it's not all that much volume, but it's, it's a lot of both. You know, it's this weird, it's this weird middle ground. So like, I like polarizing training. I think it's a good principle, like you said, to live by and then picking your spots. Maybe this is going to be a block where we just push the middle grounds, but it's like, we're doing that on purpose. And then, the, and then we're going to pull back and, and polarize it again, or work on different elements, but you kind of have a plan and it's not just trying to do the most of all of it all the time. Yeah, this is, this is completely empirical, but if, do you guys remember when, gosh, I mean, it's still kind of out there. I'm not going to name any names, but like uh, you look at like blog CrossFit programming, right? And it's like, they're, they're infamous for just kind of living in that middle zone where it's just like four or five days a week, we're doing touch and go power cleans at 80% of our one rep max. And we're doing that shit like under a very, very stressful metabolic event. And it's like day after day after day after day. And man, I don't know if you guys, like, does Outlaw still exist? Do they still, do, are they still rolling? I'm not sure. I don't think they are, so I think I can name that name. But man, that program fucked some people up, like big time, because they were infamous for just living in that middle zone where it's like, all right, we're coming out, we're gonna build a 90% in the snatch and clean a jerk, then we're gonna deload that thing, and we're gonna go touch and go 20s at 70% of whatever you hit, and then we're gonna do uh, workout of the day after with a lot of you know gymnastics and then we're gonna do 30 minutes of skill work after and people are just fucking like hanging on for dear life and some people won right like people were winning for like six months and then they fell off a cliff and you, you don't hear about those people anymore so when I think of middle zone I think of programs like that where it's like good point on yeah there is a there is a point in time where we have to play with the middle zone especially if that's what your sport entails but if you're if you're competing in August and you're living in the middle zone January through August, like that's probably not going to end well for you for the longest period of time. It may work for a year or two. Yeah, totally. And the statue clean jerk, I still like the coach is just so important. Um, it's you're going to get the qualities that you want just from continuing to come back to the gym. If you're, if you anchor, if you establish a certain technique and proficiency criteria, when we're coming, when we're talking about this, the actual skill of the statue clean jerk, if, if you're, I don't want to say stringent, but if you, if you, if the athlete understands what's acceptable and what's not, and they know, like they could answer the question of, should I go up? Like they know what you're going to say. If you guys are on the same page and you're, you're going to get, these power qualities out of the lifts just because you're doing them and you're doing them long enough to get better at them. And I was actually, I actually uh, lowballed the, um, the percentages was, was more based on like back squats, 40, 60% will maximize power. When it comes to weightlifting, uh, I've seen, I've seen an upwards of, of 80 to 90% and you actually can maximize power there um, because peak power of the barbell when it comes off your hip is pretty constant 
no matter what. It's the pull off the floor that gets really slow. And then it's, you can't pull it as high because it's heavy, but the, the speed at which it comes off the hip gets relatively constant when we start touching the 80% and above. So you can get good power, but again, you have to be proficient enough to get the bar to the contact point where your body is now in a leveraged power position to actually push into the floor and create that force into the floor and extend up. Well, a lot of times people aren't comfortable with that and they're not proficient enough to get the bar into that power position to even create any type of force into the, into the floor. So it's, it's, it's honing the positions. And if you really want to just maximize the qualities without the skill, you probably don't even need to do the full lifts. So the question is, am I doing the full lifts because I want to get better at that as a sport? Or am I doing the full lifts because I want to maximize the physiological transfer of that movement pattern to something else? And that's a different conversation. So you might skew the amount of just pull and variation work that you do versus the full lifts, depending on what you're, on what the answer to that question is. Um, but I just think, I think we try to get, sometimes we try to get a little fancy um, with things. And for me, it's minimal viable program. When I first start, it's my MVP. Uh, when I first start working with an athlete, it's very basic and it has a lot of elements. It has a lot of the basic elements. We're gonna do a little bit of jumps. We're gonna do some squats, some pulls, some presses, some push presses, and some snatch and clean jerks. And a lot of times they're full lifts, but at a closed, I just want to learn about you. We're going to, we're going to touch on all of the basics. It's my MVP. And then as I start to see, oh, he's super snappy, but he gets buried or like this, he's, I can just tell his legs are not strong. We don't, maybe don't need to do jumps right now. We start pulling that, titrating that down a little bit, titrating the squats up or he can squat a house so she can squat a house, but she gets pulled off the floor. She gets tipped forward off the floor. Say, okay, let's titrate down squats to more of kind of where I'm confident she'll maintain her strength. And let's, let's titrate up some of the pull variations where we're working on keeping her position off the floor. So if we get too fancy in the beginning, there's a lot of noise and we don't actually know what's working and what's not and what's moderating what, but if we can keep the basics in the beginning, we can start to get some information, start to accumulate some info on this athlete to inform our decision-making. And it, it's, it's really, that kind of encompasses like everything that we've talked about. And at the end of the day, it's just try it. Give it a shot. If, if, if you're comfortable with their proficiency in the movement and you know what they've been hitting, you as a coach kind of make the decision where you're comfortable pushing them and say, I want to see if adding more weightlifting will make them uh, more explosive in their box jumps or vice versa. We'll give it a shot and give it enough time for it to actually take an effect. And, you know, that's, that's just kind of like the coach in the coach on the floor in me, um, establish a baseline and then just stop talking about it and do it. <laughs> what, are you, what are you using right now to measure uh, bar velocity? I use an accelerometer. The brand is called VMAX Pro. 
I don't want to, I would get talk about this for a long time, but this, the gold standard of, or the reference standard for measuring bar velocity is a linear position transducer. It's the, the, the tether that you see attached to a bar. It's a string attached to the bar and it attaches to a box on the ground. That's gym aware. That's uh, there's a, a brand called Speed for Lifts, which they just recently rebranded. So they won't be happy that I called them the old brand, but I can't pronounce the new brand. And there's one called uh, Rep One Strength. They're all great. So a linear position transducer, if you're looking for absolute reliability and validity and accuracy, that's the thing. You hook it up to the bar, it's got the box that sits on the ground. The accelerometer is smaller and it just, it's a strap that attaches to the bar and it measures acceleration. And then you have to titrate back. You have to do a reverse equation to get velocity. Whereas the linear position transducer is just a direct measure. It's how fast does the string move, the tether move and how much distance does it move? And then it's a direct measure of velocity. That's why it's more accurate. But I like the accelerometer. So VMAX Pro is one, the push band is another. Um, because I don't have to worry about that box that's sitting on the ground getting smashed by the barbell. And I don't have to worry about that tether, like my feet hitting it or something. It's just less cumbersome. You lose some accuracy, especially with push. So some of the data on push just does not look good. It looks really like all over the place when you compare it to a gym aware or something like that. The VMAX Pro data looked a lot cleaner and that's why I decided to get it. It's also probably the cheapest thing that you're going to get um, all that's gym aware aside because gym aware is still really expensive these devices are actually getting a lot cheaper um, and we're talking still like 350 to 500 dollars somewhere in that range where you might think wow that's not cheap but if if you're using it all the time and it's giving you information then it's just it's just a coaching investment but yeah i use yeah, vmax pro. pro cool Awesome. Some serious uh, gems in that conversation, Quinn. Thank you. Well, no problem. I'm sorry for the uh, verboseness. I just got, you know, I drank a lot of caffeine before the combo, so I was ready. <laughs> no, that's all good, man. What, what, uh, what, is, what is the, gosh, you're seven years out, right, of PT school? What does the next five years look like for you, man? What's on the horizon? <laughs> I, I don't ever have an answer to that question because I actually never know. <laughs> I didn't, I don't have, I'm not one of those guys that does five-year plans or three-year plans, honestly. Um, but we do have, we do have some big things. I mean, with clinical athlete, we're looking to make systemic changes. Um, Georgia, you mentioned the schooling in the beginning of our conversation. We want, we want to change this thing from, from the bottom up and from the inside out. So we're, we're going to try to integrate ourselves more into academia and into the like the residency type programs that healthcare professionals are in who are looking to get into uh, the sports rehab, those sides of things. We're going to look to, to infiltrate that a little bit and to uh, not just wait for the old guard to uh, go away, but to, to kind of force the change a little bit more. So um, we've, we've got some ideas and we've got some initiatives that we're going to roll out, but we're really just trying to create some, some long-term change in, in the system. Um, so that's number one. And um, I mean, I honestly think that's probably the biggest thing. And we've got some, some big conferences and summits that we're gonna be putting on. We just put on one, uh, it was supposed to be in Boston, but we, we flipped it and made it online. It was, it was a good time. So I think just touching more people like you guys are doing 
and uh, just trying to be the, you know, the best source of information that we possibly can. And if that happens in the next five years, then that's my five-year plan. <laughs> that's fair, man. Let us know if there's anything that we can do to help, man. That's a, that's a great mission. And I know we have, we have a decent amount of coaches that come through our program that are, you know, indirectly or directly connected with you and clinical athletes. We have a decent amount of uh, practitioners that come through. Oh yeah. You're uh, the OPEX name. We have a forum, clinical athlete forum. We've got a lot of coaches in there too. And I mean, you guys get mentioned all the time. So we, uh, anytime somebody does mention it or I see it in like their forum application, I'm like, oh, cool. It's like this person, when I see the OPEX name on somebody's uh, clinical athlete forum application, right away, that lets me know the, the type of coach, just, just the name alone. Like they think they care about their training. Like they've got a good, they got like a real decent background just from that. So I appreciate everything that you guys do. Yeah, thanks man. Appreciate it. That's good to hear. Thanks, uh, thanks for being on, Quinn. Absolutely, I, I appreciate it. It was a fun conversation. Yeah, thanks a lot, buddy. It was great to catch up, man. Stay with us for more Backroom Talk. Yeah, Quinn, that was a great conversation and it made me like want to get out on the gym floor and coach some weightlifting classes. Yeah, it was good. It was good to get his perspective on, gosh, he, he just has so many experiences, right? It's like he's it's a fairly young dude, but he went from, you know, playing collegiate football, Division One, double A, Division One college football. I don't know what football. that means. So there's a couple levels of college okay. football. So there's Division That's One. Good. You start to hear about like USC, mm -hmm. UCLA. You went to a Division One school, Here we right? Go. Good job. And then you have your smaller schools mm -hmm. that are Division One AA, Division Two, II, Division Three, and usually it's based on how many students are at the school or how good they've been historically in a specific sport. So Division One is like top tier. He went Division One AA. Okay. Um, but anyway, so it was it was good to see kind of his uh, his his experiences and you know playing Division One football to going to PT school, to getting into CrossFit, to getting into weightlifting, to starting clinical athlete, to, to coaching individuals now. It's, he's just, he has a lot of experiences and uh, just a smart dude. It was good to catch up with him. Yeah, I loved picking his brain on, you know, um, weightlifting inside of CrossFit, the positives and the negatives from that mm -hmm. and hearing his perspective there. And I think he has a very measured one. Yep. And then also around like weightlifting for sport versus weightlifting for health, which is something we talk about a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of like synergy and alignment with uh, our approach to, to weightlifting for general population versus for people competing in sports. So. Like, I don't want to pat ourselves on the back for agreeing with Quinn, but it yeah. was just cool to hear him explain it from his perspective, why he thinks like for your average look good, feel good client, weightlifting probably doesn't have a big place in their program, like unless they just love it and it's fun yeah. and cool, figure out ways to incorporate it safely. Um, but yeah, just interesting to hear him reflect on that and how he arrived at those conclusions. Yeah, actually, when you guys watch this, it got a little weird if you know you know, what we talk about at OPEX and what we believe in, because it was just like he was, he was saying all of the things that we would say, right? And we, we didn't come out and say like, we say that too, man, that's what we do. But it, it got a little weird at the end, because I'm like, dude, everything we've talked about, it kind of seems like we prepped you for this conversation to say what we would say. Mm -hmm. So that was, it was good. It was good to see that um, and good to hear that from kind of his perspective and you know the the knowledge set that he has is it's different than the knowledge that like we're not a weightlifting company like we talk about the snatch and clean and jerk 
But that's all he talks about is the snatch and clean and jerk, right? So it was, it was good to get his perspective on those things. Indeed. Let's go, uh, let's go hit some cleans and snatches, Carl. Let's do it. <laughs> Guys, please make sure uh, you drop us a comment below to let us know uh, if you enjoyed oh, we're the still episode. On. We're still on. The CTA is important, Carl. Yes, yeah, sorry. And guys, subscribe, please. Please subscribe. Subscribe below.